You're listening to a Rock Candy podcast. Hey, I'm Will, and they call me the doctor. And I'm Joe, the maestro. We host a podcast called Common Creatives, where we break apart the art we love to see what makes it tick. Basically, we give you the definitive take on whatever or whoever we're discussing. You don't need to go anywhere else. So check out Common Creatives wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, as always, I really have to thank my patrons for this show. My patrons are keeping this show going, especially now, because I have taken a considerable cut to my pay. I am no longer teaching yoga, and uh, I've cut some of my hours as an essential worker to reduce my exposure to the public. I do work in a college town, and all three colleges have reopened, and so all of these hordes of college students are buying groceries from me now, and it it fills me with terror. So uh, I've I've reduced my hours so that I'm less exposed to the public, but that does mean that I'm getting paid less. So I'm relying on my patrons now more than ever, and if you want to join their number, if you find yourself looking forward to sacred tension every single week, excited for these conversations— please consider becoming a patron. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. There will also be a link in the show notes. And just $1 a month, um, you get full access to all of the benefits of being a patron with just $1 a month. If you want to give more, you are more than welcome to, but the entry is just $1 a month and you get all kinds of awesome extra content. So if you are unable to give financially, as a lot of people are, Uh, We are in difficult financial times right now. And if that's you, there are other ways to support this show. And one of the best ways is to just subscribe. Whatever podcast app you use, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, doesn't matter what it is, go ahead and just subscribe to it. That really helps. That tells the algorithms that it is worth recommending to others. And also, please leave a review. So I'm going to read the latest positive review. By the way, I might, if I start getting some hate reviews, I might also read those on air because those can be really fun. But uh, One Sundown left this very nice review on iTunes. They say, uh, brilliant man, a gift from the Dark Lord, which is very sweet of them. And then they go on, Stephen's podcast and Black Mass Appeal is where I come to meditate and absorb my dose of satanic wisdom. Aside from being thought-provoking, sacred tension challenges my own deeply held beliefs in a format that is very enjoyable. Also, it helps that Stephen has a great voice and sense of cadence. Well, that's very nice of you. I personally, after years of editing my own voice, feel like I have a speech impediment, but that's just me. Come here to deconstruct your worldview and create a stronger sense of what is real and true about the spiritual experience of existence and all of its strange manifestations. The mystery is never ending and neither should 
uh, anyone's curiosity. Very, very sweet review. I really appreciate that. And uh, leaving reviews, five-star reviews, it really does do an enormous amount of help. So if you leave a nice review and it's well-worded, it's well-written, I might read it on the show as a thanks to you. Also, finally, this show is also sponsored by the satanictemple.tv. There is all kinds of stuff on the Satanic Temple TV. There is There are documentaries, live streams, talk shows, conversations. There's a new cooking show on there with this satanic chef. There's also some kinky stuff on there if that's your thing. So there's all kinds of amazing content and you can use my code at checkout, sacred tension, all caps, no space, and you'll get one month free. All right. I'm almost done. I promise. Finally, we are continuing to grow the Rock Candy Podcast Network. So we have a number of fantastic shows on the network, Brown Sugar Diaries, Common Creatives, Bible Bash, Bubble and Squeak, Eleventy Life, and we have more on the way. And if you like the kind of content that we're doing, if you like this weirdness, the quirkiness, the uh, the dedication to creating a more curious world, then please send me your pitch. I would love to hear what podcast you're working on, and maybe we can help you make it even better as part of the Rock Candy Podcast Network. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, Lucian Greaves, welcome back to the show. Good to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so people love these conversations uh, with you on Sacred Tension, so I just thought that I would have you back for a casual hangout. How have you been? How's life? More of the same since last time. I've been staying in, uh-huh. uh, waiting out the pandemic. Very good. Excellent. Things and- have been a little more uh, tense here, I think, since our uh, abortion ritual rollout. Yeah, tell me about that. Uh, which part of it? The the life being more tense on the in regards to uh, fears for security or just about the campaign itself well i'm so i've i talked to jane essex about the campaign so that episode um was a week or two back uh more your the your security it's hard to know how much is unique to the moment because we've rolled this out and how much is we're just seeing because we have people watching more vigilantly now to see if they can pick up on chatter to see who's talking about coming to do something stupid. But it, it can be harrowing to know that, you know, it's deep in the forums or where people chatter openly about their militant agendas that uh, people regularly bring up, bringing violence upon the satanic temple and sometimes particularly the the headquarters building yeah but i'm really looking forward to the end of this whole election cycle i, I don't know when that'll end uh, i feel like there's going to be a lot of dispute after november 3rd about who actually won even if it's mm. quite clear who won yeah. um if it's <laughs> but if if biden takes the election i'm sure trump is not he's already well proven that he's not enough of an adult to accept that and uh his followers aren't uh independently willed enough to uh see reason and and do anything but uh take his perspective on everything so we'll see how that plays out but a lot of the angst i think we see online now is in relation to the pending election and a lot of it is uh Hmm. being spurred on by by trolls and and others just trying to sow division. So hopefully things kind of level off after, you know, some, sometime by December. Yeah, the the QAnon people have been paying attention to me lately, which is not 
a comfortable experience at all <laughs> on on Twitter. They've been, you know, uh, they I'm on their radar now as someone who promotes uh, apparently, you know, sacrificing babies because there's there's that contingent of people who who saw the satanic abortion ritual as just us admitting <laughs> that that we sacrifice babies. Oh, like uh, QAnon is a direct line into the most persuadable segment of the population that I think mm. a lot of the election time trolls are just kind of tapping into, you know, and it's it's kind of ironic they view themselves as the absolute opposite of gullible because they believe these outrageous things on the idea that they are somehow seeing past the mainstream media lies and into the truth about the reality of the situation, where in reality, these are some extremely gullible people who have somehow been sold a narrative that has them lining up behind a corrupt sitting president while also thinking that they're the defenders of liberty against a more secretive shadow government operating things in the background. It's, uh, I like to think optimistically that there's a future not too terribly far off when everybody, essentially everybody knows well enough to be disgusted by the fact that we had this incel movement and QAnon all at the same time. And, uh, and, you know, hopefully that causes people to uh, have some shame for humanity overall. Do you feel like QAnon and and the incel movement are are similar? Like, are they connected in some way or the symptom of something similar? Uh, I mean, you're really talking bottom of the barrel type stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, true. Like, yeah, it's like a, a judging uh, shades of shit. At yeah. that point, these are the darkest, darkest levels of the Internet. But QAnon um, really is more interesting to me because it's on that continuum of the satanic panic. Yeah. And I've written recently about how, you know, the International Society for the Study of Trauma and Dissociation, which is this kind of professionally accredited uh, mental health organization, uh, provides the intellectual roots for QAnon. Uh, I mean, that's a whole different topic for a whole different podcast discussion. Mm. But it is uh, disappointing to me that we've never really kind of confronted the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s in such a way to help mitigate this rise up of QAnon now. And I think it's something those of us who work with Gray Faction have seen coming for a long time. But we just could not get uh, licensing boards in the mental health field and, and others to take it seriously enough to do anything about it. And that that's really disappointing. You know, so there has been this criticism going around that I've heard on occasion on the Internet, which is, why are you still obsessed about the satanic panic? And I, I don't mean this to at you in particular, but just like in general, like, why are you still why are you so obsessed with the satanic panic? This isn't an imminent threat. It was it it died in the 90s. And my re answer to that is, no, it is very much alive and well. And it's still abusing people. And look what it has given birth to. I mean, QAnon is the latest manifest like big, huge manifestation of the satanic panic stuff that never truly died. It just went underground. It was never actually defeated in a tangible way, in such a way that it could be pushed out of the culture. 
Right. And any time you've created some kind of imaginary outgroup where you set the uh, parameters as to who belongs within that outgroup and who doesn't, and you've you've designated them as morally reprehensible, lives unworthy of life, and uh, you know criminal to the core and irredeemable. Then you're 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 also looking at uh, a movement that is going to, of course, you know, put people into that category at will, and this is going to serve as a proxy for all their other prejudices and irrationalities to the point that you know they're they're going to disguise any any type of bigotry they have as being attached to this and so if you allow you know a satanic panic to persist you're still very much contributing to xenophobia racism anti-lgbtq movements and, and the like who simply uh take take those elements and, and just plug them into uh in, into their imaginary satanic sets, and, and they go about then uh, oppressing people at will thereafter. And it's it's no small thing, you know. Nazi Germany was predicated on a conspiracy theory. You yeah. know, conspiracy theories aren't these kinds of little uh, whimsical eccentricities where, at the end of the day, uh, people are doing this kind of noble thing by by questioning the government, as some people like to present it as. But as as you see in the case of QAnon. Uh, they're very much lining up behind a, a corrupt administration, but still still imagining themselves on the outside of that kind of authoritarian movement and, and somehow the rebels against it. But really, they're they're the highly persuadable army that's been sold a complete uh, a, a complete uh, fraud. Do you feel like so? Another criticism that I hear on occasion is, um, and this actually came up today on my Discord. Uh, and, you know, I have been personally talking about QAnon quite a bit on this podcast because I think it's fascinating. Do you think that we're giving it oxygen by talking about it publicly? You know, it's past that point. Yeah, there, there's 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 that fear, I think, when something's at a lower level than QAnon. But at this point, I think it's really uh, it's, it's important to talk about QAnon at the mm. point where we actually have people heading into potential political office where they're openly endorsing this ridiculous conspiracy theory, it, it's it's time to confront it headlong. And it's also time to stop uh, pretending that it's a legitimate point of view beyond that. I mean, it is something we should talk about and confront, but we really should be open in pointing out to people that they, these are really bizarre and not uh, intellectually coherent ideas by yeah. any stretch of the imagination. Because I get that criticism sometimes where people say, does it really help for you to call this stupid as often as you do? And the answer is, I, I don't really know. Mm. But um, maybe it does. You know, I, I, I don't want people to think that I think there is any intellectual credibility to something as stupid as QAnon. I mean, I really can't help it. I look at it and I think this is stupidity and to call it anything else or to say it doesn't it isn't stupid is to redefine stupidity to me to the point where I can't recognize it any longer. Mm. You know, I, I look at the QAnon material and it is so divorced from reality, so gullible and so embarrassingly simplified in uh, in its uh 
application of, of logic. I need to not assume that everyone listening is quite as, you know, internet basement dwelling people as much as we are. So for people who might not know what QAnon is, <laughs> I need to clarify. So QAnon is... Oh God, how do I, how to even explain it? QAnon is the belief that there is a poster named Q on 4chan who is leaving cryptic messages and he is a deep state member in Trump's administration or something and that Trump is actually kind of this freedom fighter trying to fight the pedophiles and cannibals who are torturing children and then eating their adrenochrome for the for the head rush. So, yeah, it's it's fucking nuts. And you, I don't know if you're familiar with the book Them by John Ronson. It came out, I think, in the early 2000s. But John Ronson, you know, one of the points that John Ronson talks about is how every extreme, you know, he, he went and hung out with extremists and every extremist group that that he hung out with he he detected a a central conspiracy theory with every extremist group and so be it you know white nationalists the ku klux klan radical islamic terrorists or you know crazy cons- you know you know crazy uh uh off the grid militia people at, at at he he basically basically the thesis of the book them and I highly recommend everyone read it is that at at the heart of every extremist movement is a conspiracy theory and maybe that's an essentializing thing to say but I I do think that that usually holds up to scrutiny I do have an optimistic take though um and and it's not necessarily the point of view I subscribe to, but this is how you could look at this optimistically. And it it's I, I feel a a plausible scenario, but we shall see. And that is that Q, the Q movement just kind of takes things too far to the point where you know this will have to bring a sort of leveling off, and things have been being pushed further and further towards irrationality and conspiracy theory. Hmm. And hopefully there's kind of a breaking point where the pendulum starts to swing the other way. But one thing the QAnon movement started doing is hijacking the Save the Children hashtag, yes. which people had been associating with uh, fighting child trafficking and that kind of thing. And what, the, what most uh, people writing about this haven't realized is that this has been happening since the original Satanic Panic. Uh, this is how... The ISSTD has survived while still propagating ridiculous conspiracy theories and pseudoscience. At the end of the day, they'll paint themselves as being merely uh, defenders for victims of human trafficking and that kind of thing. Nobody's going to argue against you if you're trying to uh, if you're claiming that that's the core of your mission. Hmm. And of course, I don't think they have as much of an interest at all in actually combating human trafficking or anything of the type. Um, It's more that they're using this movement as a shield against scrutiny towards their irrational, idiotic claims. And, you know, you can see this this kind of effect happening in, in a lot of different places where somebody will attach themselves to a cause or some kind of organization will pop up in the name of a certain cause and because the cause is just, uh, it doesn't allow for any conversation or explore, exploration regarding their tactics 
their tactics must be sound because their their alignment with a certain issue is 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 perfectly calibrated or whatever. And I think we we're seeing that on the left too. We're seeing people claim that so long as they believe in this certain cause, their behavior is justified or their tactics must be working. And to even ask like uh, like what good they're actually doing besides grandstanding, you know, uh, often is is supposed to place you on the other side of the issue entirely. And I'm hoping that after this example of QAnon, that people start to think more clearly about just saying it's not enough to say that you're against child trafficking or something like that. It's not enough to say you're for science. It's not enough to say that you're the woman's march or whatever else. You actually have to have some kind of uh, theory of change, some plan of action. You have to uh, you have to kind of prove yourself out in the field. You have to really be uh, have a coherent message towards uh, getting the world to a place where you want it to be. You have to be advancing this mission somehow. Uh, before everybody can claim allegiance to you in the name of that that cause. And I, I think if that happens, we'll be doing a lot better off because I feel like uh, progressive causes have been really crippled by just moral grandstanding without a whole lot of action behind it. Yeah. I, so I'm really glad that you bring that up because that has been kind of an ongoing conversation lately on my podcast and on my patrons only podcast, House of Heretics. And um, I I want to pivot more to that topic of the left. Every week, every other day or so, I post one of the tenets of the Satanic Temple from my morning meditation, and and you know I I quote the tenet and just ask my audience, well, what does this mean for you today? And the fourth tenet always causes a bit of anxiety for people, uh, which is the freedoms of others should be respected, including the freedom to offend, to willfully and unjustly encroach upon the freedoms of another is to forego your own. So this this particular tenet has always been challenging for a lot of people. And uh, so I posted this today, and some people responded like, this is the one tenet that I really, really, really struggle with. And I, you know, we are living in a climate where the riots and the protests are still going on. Just a few days ago, an unarmed man was shot in the back seven times. Unarmed black man was shot in the back by the cops seven times. Right. And and so there are there are and there are more protests. And it's just this heated, tense time and we're all also living on the internet and where where does where does this tenet fit in your in your view it, right now here and now how do we how how do we navigate this tenet in times of of protest and times when it when when you know we're dealing with nazis on the internet and that's the question that i get a lot right uh, well but i uh What's ironic is that I see the situations we're in and I see that I kind of see it as affirming how vital that tenant is, especially at the point where, you know, you have people tearing down Confederate memorials and then you have this uprising of conservatives saying, well, if these Confederate memorials can be torn down because they're offensive, why can't we tear down the Baphomet monument, you know, because we're offended by that. And the fact of the matter is, is people aren't protesting because they're offended. 
They're protesting because people are getting fucking murdered on the street. Yeah. To say we're offended is not enough. That's never enough of an argument. To say you've created an imminent threat to somebody, that you've uh, that you've put somebody's life in danger, or that you've slandered somebody's uh, reputation uh, based on completely completely false information, fabrications, lies, or whatever, that's totally different than mm. saying that something merely offends you. And I think in identifying as a Satanist, people should realize that just the act of doing that is offensive to people. The act of our participation in anything is offensive to some people. Yeah. And we even see people trying to justify their revolt against our, our, our symbols being placed anywhere on public grounds or anything on the grounds that uh, on this kind of dissonant uh, logic that though they agree with with religious freedom. Yeah. So, dear audience, we just had a technical glitch that just derailed what it was that we were talking about. And uh, now neither of us can remember what it was that we were talking <laughs> about. Um, so. Okay, yeah. So so I guess here okay, here is the question that was coming into my mind as as you were talking is where do we how do we determine what is the line between offense and abuse? Like how do how do we determine that? And I think that's what a lot of people struggle with when it comes to this tenet. Like like how does this apply to say 4chan Nazis? How does this apply to to people with really reprehensible beliefs. Yeah, I mean, the thing about people with reprehensible beliefs is I don't think that preventing them from talking about those beliefs in any forum, one, prevents them from talking about those beliefs, hmm. and two, uh, I don't think it prevents them from uh, from even recruiting or, uh, or or maintaining those beliefs. So I think... You know, what we've really seen in recent times, because I really think the kind of free speech standards we've had for generations now have served us well and hmm. uh, where, you know, we, we don't we don't allow somebody to say that something needs to be censored merely because it is offensive. But we do say that, you know, this is a direct provocation to violence. Uh, you know, this is this is libelous or slanderous. And, and there's kind of a. Uh, a burden of proof to show that they actually are that in these in their, this isn't so open to subjective subjective interpretation that it can just kind of go with whatever the politics are of the person is judging it in the moment and in that way we try to keep things neutral and principled but i think things are different now because the idea of the open place uh, the open marketplace of ideas has been corrupted by social media companies like facebook and into a, a degree, uh, Twitter as well, and Google with yeah, and Google. Google with their search engines and and the algorithms of their search engines too. Right, right, yeah, no, exactly. And people feel like they're getting uh, neutral information when they're not. Hmm. But also, the direct targeting of misinformation to the people most willing to embrace it and most easily persuaded by it is cu really cutting out the marketplace of ideas hmm. because a lot of us aren't seeing the conspiracist materials that are going directly to 
Trump voters and, and other other people in, in those far right circles who are seeing this stuff, feeling that it's entirely normalized and really not exposed to the other point of view to the point where we really do have people in this kind of insular online environment further and further down a spiral into extremism that I do think would be mitigated if the entire business model of of say Facebook was entirely gutted in the way that they did not keep uh, private data on every user, uh, the kind of information that they they collect in detail and, and shouldn't have at all, and that they also use so people can directly market their messages to them. I think the uh, the reprehensible business model of Facebook is really destroying our kind of uh, uh, marketplace of ideas, and it, mm. it's. It, it really has come time to regulate these things. But I think the answer is not giving even uh, more increased powers to Google and Facebook to uh, judge political content and things like that. I just think they shouldn't be allowed to to target their marketing like they do. Yeah. And I, th- I think then we'll be able to, uh, to confront ludicrous ideas that uh, some people, I think, come across and don't even realize how many people would find it ludicrous or uh, don't naturally embrace the kind of uh, information that would uh, disabuse them of their their delusions. Yeah. And honestly, it's one of the reasons why I podcast, because I feel like podcasts are one of the the really one of the last, you know, frontiers of of free speech on the Internet <laughs> of um, where you can have these long form conversations and and they aren't quite as mediated by the platforms that they are on. You know, Libsyn and Podbean, you know, I'm sure that they do some mediation and this might actually be changing with Spotify suddenly eating up all of the podcasts everywhere. You know, they just got a multi-million dollar deal with Joe Rogan exclusive for Joe, you know, with Joe Rogan on Spotify. Last podcast on the left is exclusively on on Spotify. So so this might change with Spotify and have some kind of social media model there. But I love podcasts because I feel like it's one of those last places where the market of ideas can actually exist on the Internet more so than on other platforms, not perfectly, but more so than on other platforms. So I guess my question at this point is, do you feel like the left has a hard time judging the difference between offense and abuse right now when it comes to speech? Uh, I don't. I, I I don't really know. I, I, I see a lot of people. The, the problem is I see a lot of people making bold statements without a whole lot of examples, you know, about the and, left or from the left uh, from everywhere. OK, you know, so, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. People will decry what they call free speech absolutism and say that it's, uh, you know, now, you know, being a centrist has become this uh, this terrible thing as well. Where, you know, the idea is if you support free speech, you're merely uh, protecting Nazis or something. Because apparently the thinking is, is that if you have, uh, you know, stronger censorship standards, that uh, they're going to be the only ones who are going to be taken down by this and that this couldn't possibly be abused. Um, And that's just not how legal standards like this exist. You know, that's not how they how they work. you have to be worried that once somebody puts, uh, you know, more prohibitive standards in place that other people are going to be accused of 
uh, offenses they have nothing to do with if you're not careful, if you don't carefully yes. and narrowly define those things. And I think what everybody should see from their understanding of the satanic temple, if you even have just a rudimentary understanding of our history, you'll see how we've taken religious liberty rulings and use them to our benefit in ways that uh, obviously weren't probably intended by the people who are pushing for those kinds of exemptions or privileges for religion. And you always have to think if you're working in a system that is supposed to apply laws by principles, how does this work the other way? Yeah. So if you're going to say that we should be able to censor offensive material that people feel marginalizes them, you have to realize that that can that just leaving it at that is easily going to throw the satanic temple under the bus because yeah it, it's about who who watches the watchmen who, like right. like and yeah there isn't there isn't a religion in the world that can't claim itself a religious minority you know yes uh, catholics are going to say that they're 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 directly oppressed by what we do and paint themselves as a religious minorities and they have done that whenever we've done events or whatever yes. say that we uh, and they liken us to to a hate group you know that's trying to uh to marginalize and oppress them and because they're offended we should be censored from what we do and if you're not careful with how you construct your arguments to those kinds of things you are going to have these kinds of unintended consequences. When we were talking about a controversial lawyer we worked with because he defended a, uh, a publisher who published neo-Nazi materials. I mean, he's, he's not a good guy, you know, he's a piece of shit. But uh, he was defended on the grounds that the legal theory was a dangerous precedent to set. You know, that he published stuff, uh, and while he wasn't calling for anybody to get hurt, this inspired people to do hateful things towards somebody in particular. And, you know, it worked uh, in prosecuting this person, and the fear was is that that was kind of an overly broad argument. And now that argument is being used against uh, some organizers of Black Lives Matter who uh, supposedly their rhetoric hmm. is causing other people to hurt the police and things like that. Huh. And these aren't, this isn't an obscure case. Anytime, I mean, this kind of situation isn't, isn't unheard of. Anytime you open that door and say, all right, we got to crack down on this. The other side is going to be seeing how they can benefit from that as well. And, and you, you really, you really need to define things to the, to the point where you simply cannot say that somebody else's subjective interpretation that something is offensive is enough in and of itself to say that something should be censored. There has to be more to it than that. Somebody, you know, there has to be some tangible sense of physical danger attached to that. There has to be some real measurable damage damage done beyond that. And, and, and not even, uh, I don't know how to say it, but you also have to account for the fact that, you know, if the truth is spoken, sometimes uh, uh, you, you can't hold the truth speaker responsible for the damage that causes either. Yeah. You know, like if I'm writing a gray faction article about uh, a, a clinician or therapist who's uh, engaged in egregious malpractice, you know, they can't just simply say that this makes them look bad. So you can't do that either. And not saying that that particular uh, argument applies to any of the uh, situations we were talking about earlier. But these are all these kinds of things you need to keep in mind. So, you, you know, you need to really come up with standards that address all of this and really narrowly define what you're what you're looking for when you're talking about restricting anything any further or, or it's going to have negative ramifications. 
Mm. Yeah, you know, I approach free speech as a queer person. You know, I am a degenerate faggot. And there are so many people who would like to see me burn. You know, there are so many people who see my very existence as highly offensive. And and what I am worried about is setting a precedent for policing just based on offense. You know, policing someone's speech, just policing some because who watches the watchman when there is a change of power, when you know how who will be the first people to to be on the fucking firing squad <laughs> like for real it's going to be minorities i mean i i don't mean that i i mean that metaphorically um who are going to be the first people who are the victims of of that kind of precedent when the tables churn it's going to be people like me well, the thing that really perplexes me is that these calls for more limitations on speech seem to have really been on the rise during the Trump administration. So who they're asking to be the watchman in this case is a mystery to me. And I don't know why, you know, if we're looking for some kind of federal law against hate speech or whatever else, why we would want to do that while this administration sits I mean, you, uh, Trump has already indicated that he feels like I, that. I, I even think he feels that uh, Black Lives Matter is on the verge of a terrorist organization. Right. And if we don't have a like, yeah, I mean, looking at what what counts as a violation of free speech, threats to violence, libel and slander. I think those are the big three. Right. Violence, libel and slander. Those are the big three. I can't I don't know what beyond those three would would be applicable you know like i don't know what beyond those would be applicable without it turning around and 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 biting us in the ass and and ultimately marginalizing people who are marginalized to begin with yeah but again i think people are responding to something that they don't uh necessarily keep up on the complexities of but mm. uh, and and i don't think people really fully grasp how unbalanced the information ecosystem has become with the rise of social media and the fact that people really, uh, by and large, get their news from the social media platforms that they frequent now. And they do that without an understanding necessarily that their feeds are curated and cultivated by the algorithms that yeah. uh, are meant to further reinforce what they already seem to believe. And in that way, our social media platforms really have become extremism machines where they keep pushing people towards a certain direction. They keep giving them more and more bombastic content uh, skewed uh, radically over to one side or the other in, in a way that makes makes the more radical extreme seem normal to people. It, it normalizes this in such a way that that we're at the place that we are now, which I feel like, you know, 15 years ago would have been unheard of. You know, I know, you know, back then, uh, for me, the idea that we would even need to be talking about uh, neo-Nazis as a as a present threat was, you know, uh, fucking insane <laughs> so okay yeah an example of of social media feeds distorting people's worldview or or distorting distorting people's perspectives okay i just stumbled across this thing on the internet last night or two nights ago and i'm super frustrated by it and i haven't vented to anyone about it so lucian i'm gonna vent to you about it okay so 
there is this there is this little cartoon that came out shortly after the Charlottesville rally, the white nationalist Charlottesville rally back when that happened. So this has been around for several years and this became a really, really, really popular meme. And it's a little cartoon of a quote from Karl Popper from a footnote in one of his books. And Karl Popper, of course, fucking legend. He, you know, he's a genius, uh, philosophy of science, um, political philosophy, all kinds of stuff. I mean, just an absolutely brilliant person. But, but it was a cartoon with this quote, and it's about the parad- what, what Popper calls the paradox of tolerance. And so here's the quote from the cartoon. Should a tolerant society tolerate intolerance? The answer is no. It's a paradox, but unlimited tolerance can lead to the extinction of tolerance. When we extend tolerance to those who are openly intolerant, the tolerant ones end up being destroyed and tolerance with them. Any movement that preaches intolerance and persecution must be outside the law. As paradoxical as it may seem, defending tolerance requires to not tolerate the intolerant. Okay, so reading that, that looks like a that looks like a big glaring loophole in the rules of free speech, right? That like here is this eminent philosopher who's who is one of the best thinkers about, you know, civil society basically saying, well, if someone's espousing terrible ideas, then then here's this loophole. And I've heard so many leftist people, you know, I watch a lot of leftist YouTubers, so many of them have, have suddenly been talking about the paradox of tolerance. Well, so the other day I went back and I read the full quote, and here's how he ends. Here, here's how Karl Popper ends this footnote. That So they, he goes on later to say, I do not imply, for instance, that we should always suppress the utterance of intolerant philosophies, as long as we can counter them by rational argument and keep them in check by public opinion, suppression would certainly be most unwise. But we should claim the right to suppress them if necessary, even by force. For it may easily turn out that they are not prepared to meet us on the level of rational argument, but begin by denouncing all argument." They may forbid their followers to listen to rational argument because it is deceptive and teach them to answer arguments by the use of their fists or pistols. We should therefore claim in the name of tolerance the right not to tolerate the intolerant. So basically what he's saying is it it isn't this. It, it was painted on the Internet in leftist spaces of Karl Popper, the, the paradox of tolerance as being this exemption to speech that we find distasteful right too too far right or too homophobic or too this or too that but if you and that's all people saw of that quote and it became gospel that's all people saw of that quote but no one took the time to fucking read the rest of the footnote and the rest of the footnote is actually Karl Popper saying something that's just really fucking obvious with that that is that is actually pretty obvious like the allies during world war 2 they were enacting the paradox of tolerance by fighting against Hitler because Hitler was committing acts of violence <laughs> that you and and it and he says you know we should not suppress speech we should so basically he's saying we should tolerate intolerance up to a point up to a point that it becomes violent anyway i just had to yell about that for a few minutes because it was so fucking annoying when i found that <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah but uh you know like i was saying 
the, the problem of really narrowly defining what you do and do not allow and making sure that you don't leave that too terribly flexible. A good kind of uh, case study in that is looking at like the redefinition of religious freedom now. Mm. You know, it's in the name of tolerance that the theocrats now try to paint their homophobic point of views. You know, they're they're not homophobic. They're not they're not discriminated against anybody. They're being discriminated against because these are their deeply held beliefs. You know, they they believe that this is a sin or whatever. So even, you know, people having their their homosexual lifestyle or whatever uh, lifestyle choices, they 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 painted out to be as part of the homosexual agenda or whatever is is in some way oppressing them and this is this is a terribly long stretch but this is that's the point they brought it to now they've stretched it that far you know and they will make those arguments and you will see their the lawyers for like the alliance defending freedom and uh, uh family research council they're going to be making those kinds of arguments all the time and when you open the door and say that we're not going to tolerate intolerance well there again too you're going to see the satanic temple being charged with uh merely doing what we do in the name of intolerance and and having people putting words in our mouths, you know, and if you give people, that's my real fear when you start censoring people is you start leaving it open to somebody's interpretation to, to tell other people what other parties mean by what they say. Yeah. You know, I feel like if there were standards in place, uh, blasphemy, anti-blasphemy standards and, in hate speech restrictions that would have caused the satanic temple to be silenced uh, from the beginning, people would never know what we were really about. And, and we would have always be denigrated as this movement that was particularly meant to, you know, just take a shit upon true believers and, and make the world a less safe place for them. And uh, I, I don't like to take anybody's word for it about where somebody stands on issues, especially if we're talking about uh, doing anything that uh, that might directly harm their 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 reputation, their lives, or whatever, you know. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is it for this show. This conversation with Lucian went quite long, so I'm actually splitting this up into two episodes. So stay tuned next week for part two of my conversation with Lucian Greaves, where we take some questions from my audience. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long. The music is by The Jelly Rocks and Eleven D7. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The artwork is by Ramakrishna Das, and this is a production of Rock Candy Recordings. As always, hail Satan, and we'll see you next week.
Commitment to sparkle. 